understand that it is not the piety that has been preached in the course of the last week, but the lack of speech that has brought us back to the church. I may be longer today in my talk than I am usually because I would like to touch upon several different points and wind up a series which would have begun before we move on. What I would like to start with is a point at which we had ended last time. The fact that the creative world in its materiality had not been separated from God by its own sin, but had lost its way because of the sin of man. And that the matter of this world remains God's own. And God remains for the material created world its master, its lord. It remains transparent to God. And there is a passage in the writings of St. Paul in which he says that the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, for mankind to come to its senses, for mankind to become again what it was called to be through its own communion with God, the guide of all the creation, leading it from glory to glory to the point when ultimately God shall be all in all. And I have insisted on the fact that we must look at all the created world from this angle, and that what ecology is doing on one level, we, in our faith, must do on the same level, but at another depth and with another meaning. This world, in its materiality, is sacred. It is God's own, and we are called to be his guide and its servants, so that it can be freed from our sin and enter into a communion with God which it cannot possess without us. We may ask ourselves why. Because man is endowed with equality, which 
the material world does not possess. Consciousness and the freedom to determine its own destiny. Consciousness that should make us truly aware of what the created world is and of our potential relatedness to God. It is men, I may put it this way, that should be the consciousness, the mind, the awareness, the will of the whole creation into the depths of God. And in that respect, we were we carry a very serious responsibility for what has happened, is happening to the world. And it is not enough for us to treat it as matter in our service, but to treat it as a pure object come out of the hands of God whom we are called to serve and to dive into its fullness. Another question, in that respect also, we must be aware of the tragedy which the fall has been for not only the matter of this world, but for the living beings. In one of the early chapters of Genesis, we are told that after the flood, God spoke to Noah and said, Noah, All living creatures are delivered into your hands. They will be your food and you will be their terror. In these words we can measure the depth, the horror of our having lost our communion with God. Instead of being the guides, the loving, caring guides of not only the matter of this world, but all saints and beings who have become for them a terror. And this explains why in the ascetic tradition one of the elements of asceticism consists in rejecting animal food. Not because, not only because it makes us participate through their flesh and their blood in their materiality, but because it makes them victims and us an object of terror. It is an attempt at turning away 
from this monstrous relationship in the simplest possible manner. I'm not preaching now the renunciation to all animal food. That is a more complex problem that I can present just now. But basically, we turn away from being beasts of prey and terror on the realm where we should be the guides, the shepherds, the protectors. Now, a simple question which I want to touch upon is this. God created the world in an act of love. He created it in order to give himself to it, to make the world partaker of all he is except the very mystery of his divine nature. Is it possible then that the fact that he was beguiled by the lie of the serpent and that Adam accepted what she said to him and accused God himself of being the cause ultimately of their fall. But does it mean that this is the end? I believe that it very often this is more or less how we perceive things. A decisive final rupture between man, humanity, and God. Irretrievable. And then the question is, comes up. How could God allow this? His act of creation was an act of love. How could he not come to the rescue of those who created by him in order to know him, to use the words of St. Paul, as he knows us, to know the created world in him and through him, how is it that he allowed a fall that seems to be irremediable? What are the fathers? And I believe it is Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, but I do not want to calumniate him by using his name, although it is one of the ancient writers which is the root of what I'm going to say. One of the fathers said that even the fall was part of the divine providence. Not in the sense that it was willed from God, but in the sense that even the fall could not defeat the intention of God and ruin what he had intended. 
And the thought which this father presents is that had the first couple, Adam and Eve, and their descendants remained totally unaware of evil, of wrong. Had they remained totally innocent, like babes, they would have grown into communion with God, but never into true human maturity. What has happened by God's permission was that man suddenly was confronted with the loving of the devil, God beguiled and had to face his destiny <coughs> and the destiny of mankind no longer as an innocent, kind creature, unaware that there is an alternative to perfection and to good, but with a new maturity, or a maturity that was to grow, to be discovered, <coughs> to grow through tragedy, but which was to make of mankind a race different from the naive babes which they would have been. And there is a remarkable passage in the book of Isaiah, a passage which is read on the eve of Christmas in the Orthodox Church, in which speaking of Jesus Christ, the text says that a virgin will bring forth a child who before he can discern good and evil will have chosen the good. But this is not in contradiction which I have said a moment ago. Because Christ is not a new creation. Christ is the, the third of all humanity struggle against evil until it is overcome in the person of the mother of God. To this I will come in much greater detail later. But I wanted to quote this passage because it could be held against the words of this father. But then we are confronted with the world which was created for without evil intrinsic to it, and which now is conversant with evil, and which is in the power of death. Death meaning the fact 
the Lord of Lords. A French Protestant writer, Roland Fleury, was one of the heroes of the French resistance in Europe during the war. Speaking of the fall and its consequences, used a phrase which struck me and made which made life interesting. He says, when men turned away from God, it was as though God did not exist anymore for him. God, as it were, was behind his back, and he was looking in the opposite direction. And having lost God in that sense, and to that extent, he could only die. Because in what he had in front of him, there was existence. There was life, but not eternal life. And so we are confronted with this mankind and this created world, which has lost its way, but which has not been abandoned from God. One of the remarkable things which we find in the Old Testament, not to speak of the New One, is that apart from the other characteristics of God which we have discovered step by step until now, we discover this moment, God's faithfulness. God remains faithful to those who have betrayed Him listen to the tempter and believe the tempter more than they, had, than they believe him. Those who had turned away from him to find their own way. There is a passage again in, I believe, Jeremiah the prophet, but I'm not sure, in which the Lord speaks and says, I am like the faithful husband of the wayward wife. I am betrayed. At times I am mocked. And these are not his words. I am enlarging on the thought. I am betrayed. At times I am mocked. At times I am forgotten. At times I'm replaced by other gods. Love is given in a wayward manner, and I remain faithful forever. This is something which is very essential for our understanding of the Old and the New Testament. This faithfulness of God, a love that never falters. A love that is exaltation when his creatures turn to him, respond to him, believe in him, trust him, are faithful to him, follow his advice, and which becomes searing pain 
when his creatures turn away from him, a searing pain, which we will see later, but we are all aware of it, culminates in the birth of the Son of God as the Son of Man, Jesus, into the realm of death. The acceptance of the mortality of mankind taken upon himself and his death upon the cross. This is, in short, the measure of his loyalty to us and his faithfulness to us. But then the question of death comes up. Eternal life is beyond us until the incarnation and until the end of time. Death is the destiny of all creatures, including all of us after the incarnation. What is the destiny of those who die? We can see images of it in various places. Basically, the parable of Christ concerning Lazarus and the rich man, which contains, as it were, the faith of the Old Testament and of Israel before him in his time. Two men die. The one was a victim and was free of the kind of sin that kills the turning away from God. The other one was endowed with all that the earth could offer and he had no use for God. He had enough to plunder on the earth. They both died. And they both find themselves at the same time in the same place and at the same time in different sections of it. Lazarus is together in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man is in a place of agony. But neither of them is back into the fullness of communion with God. What we call the hell of the Old Testament, what the Old Testament called the Sheol, is not a place similar to the inferno of Dante, or the hell of which 
so often one speaks a place of torment where the sinner are punished for the evil they have committed or lived in. The Sharon is simply and this word I should not have used. It is too terrifying. The Sharon is the place where God is not. Those who on earth have not been in the communion with God, which was human vocation, find themselves again in the absence of God. But in this situation, the ones have been righteous, longing for God, and the other ones turning away from Him. Their destiny is different, and yet it is the place which for the Old Testament was a place of ultimate absence, the place to which everyone went and where God was not. <coughs> and in that sense, the Psalm of David, which says, in heaven thou art, and in hell thou art also, and the word is Sheol, must have seemed to be totally incomprehensible to his contemporaries. How could, how could God be in heaven, which is his abode, and at the same time also in the place where he was not? I think it was a prophetic passage in which David again, in his visionary approach, saw without being able to elucidate it or to explain it what we let later discover in the New Testament after his crucifixion and his death, we are told that Christ descended into hell. He descended into that place where the righteous and the sinners were equally perceiving and lamenting the absence of God. When he came into this hell, this hell was destroyed forever. There is no such place now which is not filled with the divine presence. We have the passage from Isaiah to speak of this, which is quoted by St. John Chrysostom his, his, in his homily which we read on Easter night. The destiny of human beings is not simply the same whether we have been saints or sinners, good or evil, but there is no such place left which is total absence of God. 
And so, even if we think, reading, for instance, the parables of the judgment, in terms of the judgment and of the tragedy for those who have lived an unworthy life and find themselves in the divine presence, even then, it is in the divine presence it takes place. It is not an ultimate separation. Certain writers have spoken of it very beautifully. Then he asked that the last judgment is the moment when we emerge out of our earthly life of unfaithfulness, of sin, of unworthiness, and find ourselves face to face with the God who has loved us all this time at the cost of his life. It's a moment when we are, as it were, suddenly inflamed with horror and pain and regret. This is the moment of judgment. Now to go back to what I was saying, if there is this faithfulness of God <coughs> to a wayward world, what is happening? Last time I mentioned the fact that God reveals himself in all his creation. St. Paul speaks of this and um, the Psalms and other passages of the Bible are full of this. And so, even to the extent to which mankind was no longer capable of communing with God to the full extent, in full transparency, with the openness of a child who has not yet known separation. Even then, by communing with the world, which God has made, mankind was still able to discover itself and God. <coughs> Again, when we read this beginning of Genesis, can see Adam and Eve moving into this world that has become a twilight instead of being a glorious morn. But even in the twilight, they knew that they had known God and that God, as it were, was hiding there. Because the twilight is not total darkness. 
that command of God to give God's blessings to the people of the covenant. In a way, at that moment, in his own closeness to God, communion with him, knowledge of him, guided by him, he is greater than Abraham and all those who are with him. He can bless in God's name. We may come back to Melchizedek later when we reach the New Testament because you remember what St. Paul says that Christ is the high priest of creation according to order of Melchizedek. But again we must ask ourselves of questions. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And we read in the Old Testament that the earth cried in horror because the earth is pure. He cried in horror at receiving the blood of the first son God does not erase him 